Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, so today on the podcast, I welcome back Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. He is an associate clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. Roger was on the show last fall, lending his considerable insight into COVID-19 treatments. He has been regularly attending to COVID patients in the ICU at Redlands Community Hospital and at San Gorgonio Memorial Hospital in Southern California. Dr. Schwelt has also produced hundreds of videos that demystify complicated medical concepts for his website medcram.com and his massively popular eponymously named YouTube channel. In this episode, Roger and I go deep into our multifaceted human relationship with sunlight. Now you may be familiar with the role of solar radiation and photosynthesis and the relationship between ultraviolet B rays and the production of vitamin D, but I guarantee you will be blown away by what Roger shares about sunlight in this interview. And I'm excited to announce that we have just produced a course with Roger titled The Five Keys to Immunity, which will be available on Commune. Now, if you're interested in functional medicine-based programs with teachers like Roger Schwelt and Dr. Mark Hyman, on topics such as gut health, sleep, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. 
my mom prints out the reviews and puts them on her fridge. So be nice. Without further delay, I present to you Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Roger Schwelt. Nice to see ya. It's very good to be here, Jeff. Yeah, we've had so much fun. I, I'm really just so appreciative of you and Kyle coming up and spending time up here in Topanga. Yeah, it's been great. And my only one great regret is that uh, we did not record our sauna session <laughs> from the other night because I think there were some gems of wisdom in there. <laughs> there were. There were. <laughs> we'll see what we can recreate with our time together here. Um, so... Humans have a very dependent and complicated relationship with the sun, with sunlight. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously, sunlight enters our atmosphere and hits the chloroplast on, the, on a plant, for example, and uh, catalyzes this process called photosynthesis, uh, in which plants make macronutrients, which we then consume, or other animals consume it, and then we consume those other animals, and we metabolize that into energy. So we're essentially on some level just kind of continuous light energy. So that's one very important role of the sun. And part of that process, uh, one of the byproducts of photosynthesis is oxygen. So that's very key, as we will discuss um, to some degree in the process of cellular respiration. And then obviously UVB light is responsible for our endogenous production of vitamin D, which is, as you have um, extolled the virtues of vitamin D so eloquently uh, on the MedCram YouTube, um, is key for immunity and also for the absorption of, of calcium, etc. But we're here to talk about a, a more secret or a less discussed um, uh, relationship between sunlight and a particular hormone known as melatonin and i think what people are going to learn today uh is going to blow their minds because it blew my mind when mm. i heard you and kyle talk about it um so melatonin's famously associated with sleep um i think most people sort of think of it as a supplement you know yeah. to be honest um but it also has a potentially more, even more useful function, which you will divulge yes. as we get into this conversation. And it's, uh, like I said, it is illuminating in yeah. every possible yes. way. Yes. It's hard to not use puns in this <laughs> yeah. kind of discussion. <laughs> it is. It's illuminating, yeah. eye-opening. Yeah. yeah. So there are a bunch of terms that you will... Uh, dexterously move like chess pieces over the next <laughs> time that we have together here. Yeah. And I thought it would be good just upfront for the sake of the audience to define um, some of these terms that we're going to be using um, throughout this conversation. So I think one place to start would be, uh, it would be really helpful if you could define the solar spectrum, yeah. the light spectrum. Could you do that? Yeah. So the sun is a big fiery ball at the center of the solar system and it gives off a tremendous amount of energy 
And anything that gives off a tremendous amount of energy is going to give off energy in a wide spectrum. This spectrum that I'm referring to um, goes from wavelengths that are very short to wavelengths that are very long. What does that mean? Uh, for us who have, you know, humans who have eyes and can see light, which is a source of energy, we see different colors. We see red light, orange light, all the colors of the rainbow, all the way to blue light. But that's just a very narrow spectrum, a very narrow slice of that wide spectrum. There is light that we can't see that's infrared. The reason why it's called infrared is because it has a longer wavelength than the longest wavelength that we can see, which is red light. And then we have ultraviolet light, which has a shorter wavelength than the shortest wavelength that we can see, which is violet. And so all of that energy that is beyond violet is known as ultraviolet radiation. And similarly, all of the light that is beyond the red is known as infrared radiation. So if we look at those three major aspects of light that's coming to us from the sun, the big fiery ball at the center of the solar system, we have visible light, which only makes up about 39% of the total energy. So there's a huge amount of energy outside of what we actually see. And I'll give you an example here in just a sec. Then we have ultraviolet radiation, which there's a small component of that as well. And, and that's, as you mentioned, involved in making vitamin D. But then there's this infrared radiation, which is actually more than 50% of the energy from the sun is coming as infrared energy. And how, do you, how can you detect it? What, how do you see it? You can't see it. But what you can do to detect it is try this one day. It's a bright, sunny day outside, and you close your eyes. Close your eyes so tight that you can't see the sun. Uh, even put blindfolds on. If you were to stand outside, you could still tell where the sun is coming from because you feel that warmth. Mm, and so yeah. what's going on here, let me explain, is infrared radiation is has a long wavelength of light. It's able to penetrate things much better than regular light that you would see. And so ultraviolet, sorry, infrared light will go through your shirt will go and hit the, the epidermis of your skin. It will go deep down into the dermis of your skin and actually stimulate your heat receptors. And that warmth that you feel from the sun is actually not light that we're seeing. It's infrared radiation penetrating deep down that far. The reason why it's able to do that is because it has a longer wavelength of light. Think about this in terms of when you're pulling up to a stoplight and there's some teenagers that pull up next to you playing that stuff they call music. Uh, and it's the boom, boom, right? That sort of <laughs> that's stuff. That's my daughter yeah, you're talking exactly. about. Okay, it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's going through their car. And notice, by the way, you're not hearing the high-pitched frequencies. You're hearing just the mm -hmm. low-pitched. And that's because that's the type of energy that can penetrate not only their car, but your car and vibrate your steering wheel. The same thing's happening with infrared radiation. Hmm. That's so interesting. So if, um, I mean, this is largely an audio format and not a video format. So what I was yeah. trying to think about how to explain the nature of these waves, right? So infrared might be Roger <laughs> and, uh, and visible light might yeah. be Roger. Yeah. And ultraviolet light might be Roger, Roger, yeah, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a fair? <laughs> that, yeah. Somewhat. <laughs> somewhat. It's somewhat. Another analogy that would make perfect sense is you know that if you're next to a, a lightning strike, you're going to hear a crash and then boom, right? right. You're going to hear high frequency all the way down to low frequency. But when that thunder is miles and miles away, you'll just hear a slight rumble. Mm, yeah. And it's because that low frequency has has the ability to penetrate and travel far distances. It's exactly the same thing with energy from the sun. Yeah. So 
the range of visible light, how is that measured and, and what is that range exactly? So it's measured in nanometers and, you know, there's general uh, 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 nanometer length of the wavelength. So we're talking extremely, extremely small, but we're talking 300 nanometers up to like 700 nanometers. That's generally where we see the visible spectrum. Once you get starting going past 760 nanometers up to 1400 nanometers, this is longer wavelength. This is the type of wavelength that we're talking about today that's going to be very important when we talk about near infrared radiation right um and then often uh, a lot of people talk about blue light yes and we'll talk about that in the course of our discussion yep. so does blue light sit within that range of visible light as a subset yes it's around 400 nanometers uh 400 480 We'll talk about that when we talk about uh, some of the things in our eyes and what, what likes to stimulate things in the eyes. Great. Okay, so I think that was some really good grounding around the light spectrum. Another um, term that I would love you to unpack is the term oxidative stress. Yes. Okay, so imagine a molecule that is so reactive that it's so damaging that anything it touches, it changes. Those are the types of things that we call reactive oxygen species. Um, th another way of looking at it is imagine an engine. An engine has to uh, make locomotion. That's how an engine works. It, it spins your tires. It lets you go from point A to point B. A byproduct of an internal combustion engine, though, is that it makes heat. And just as that heat can if not dealt with appropriately, can shut down the engine because it causes heat damage and, and expansion. The pistons get seized up. That's the same thing that happens with oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is a byproduct of something that is very essential for us as human beings. What is that essential thing? It's making energy, right? We, we break down various different types of foods. We make energy. Innate in that process of making energy, something that we can get very technical about, this happens in the mitochondria of cells. There's something called an electron transport chain. This, think of this as like the Colorado River. It starts off in the, in the peaks of Colorado and it ends in the Gulf of California. But along the way, that river goes through dams and those dams utilize the height of that, of that water molecule as it falls down to generate electricity. Well, this is similar of what's happening in the mitochondria. You have these high energy electrons that are very reduced. They're usually in the form of fats, sugars, and they've gotten that way because of the sun, interestingly. Mm. And what happens is, is as those electrons are stripped off of those molecules in the mitochondria, they start to fall down this chain where they become less activated, less activated, less activated. Soon it gets to the point where they're so less activated. They have, they have very low energy electrons that the only molecule left that will accept these electrons is, get ready, oxygen. oxygen. Exactly. <laughs> so oxygen uh, accepts these electrons and normally it's supposed to take four at a time and that turns it into a very benign molecule called water. 
Right. Okay. But the problem is, is that when you get one, two, or three of these electrons uh, put onto this oxygen molecule, you'll get either a superoxide, a hydrogen peroxide, or a hydroxy radical, respectively. And these molecules are extremely reactive. Like literally, they only have to go a few nanometers or angstroms or whatever the measurement is. And the first molecule that they bump into, they will change it and damage it. Hmm. So, so this is a constant problem that the body is having to deal with just in terms of doing business, of making energy. Yeah, it's interesting that through the system of the electron transport chain and, and energy production, the body will make mistakes, but then it also has safe gap measures for correcting some of those mistakes, and we'll talk about it. Um, when people use the word free radicals, and uh, is that an interchangeable word with reactive oxygen species or um, these charged uh, molecules that produce oxidative stress? Yeah, for the most part. And for what we're talking about today, they're, they're completely interchangeable. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, now, melatonin, um, it's a hormone, right? Can you talk just a little bit about the nature of melatonin? We don't have to get deep into the sure. biosynthesis of it, yeah. though we'll save it for another episode. But, um, but just kind of some broad uh, parentheses around um, melatonin. Yeah. So melatonin uh, was first discovered in the bloodstream, and we isolated it to this gland, if you will, in the brain called the pineal gland. It's part of the brain. And melatonin is secreted at certain times of the day specifically at around nine or 10 o'clock in, in most people, depending on when your circadian rhythm is. And that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. But what melatonin we understood, you know, prior to this episode uh, <laughs> does or did is um, it signals the body and tells it that it's ready for sleep. It's, it's, a, it's a very important molecule in that it is signaling the body. It's secreted at the right time and it signals the body for the benefits and, and tells the body that it's time for sleep. Got it. Um, and melatonin is synthesized from a uh, neuromodulator that many people might be familiar with called serotonin, Yes, um, which is often associated uh, with mood, yes. right? And then there's a precursor even to that, which is an amino acid known as tryptophan. And we're going to discuss on some other podcasts whether or not one needs to exogenously uh, consume tryptophan <laughs> in order to properly make... Yes. Um, um, serotonin and then, um, subsequently melatonin, but let's, um, get into, um, the relationship between melatonin and the sleep wake cycle. And I think part of that is really explaining this notion of the circadian clock. What is it? How is it regulated? what triggers it, et cetera. Can you expand yeah, that, on that? Yeah. So, so there's this, there's a, there's, there's all these clocks all throughout your body. And the problem is, is that just like in society, we all have clocks and, you know, we need to know what to set it to, right? Well, what time is it? And, you know, now, nowadays we just pull out our iPhone and see what time it is on the iPhone. And that's what we set the time to. Well, think about the iPhone as sort of the master clock, or, you know, if you've got a, a smartphone or a Samsung or a Google or whatever, um, there's some sort of reference that keeps time that everything else times to. And that's what's going on in the brain in a portion of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's a long word, SCN, SCN. Uh, that we will use. And it's in this structure in the brain that the master clock resides. 
Hmm. What's going on here is that there are certain processes, there's a lot of processes, lots of proteins, thousands of proteins and, and, and uh, genes and byproducts, all of which need to go off without a pitch. Here's a great analogy to think about. You go to the concert, let's say it's a, it's a Beethoven's fifth concert, right? And the conductor needs to start the orchestra all at the right time because you've got the, the violins, you've got the drums, you've got the oboe, you've got percussion. They're all there. They're all ready to start. They all have the music correctly written. It's all written out. And he's going he's gonna to hit that downbeat. Uh, Beethoven's fifth, by the way, starts with a downbeat and then dun, 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 dun. dun, dun. dun. Right, exactly. <laughs> so if he hits that downbeat, dun, 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 at the right time and everyone's on sync, you're going to get a beautiful performance. But if everybody decides to start at a different time, you're going to get a cacophony of confusion and it's not going to sound well at all. The master clock is that conductor and it tells the body when it is that it needs to do things. And that might not seem uh, very important, but it actually is extremely important. And the reason why it's important is because of the reason of, uh, of why we sleep, of why there's certain times of the day that are better that, for eating than other times of the day. It's because just like any major city, there are certain times of the day when you want to do construction and there are other times of the day when you want to break down, repair, and fix. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine what would happen if uh, Caltrans here in California decided to fix all the freeways at rush hour. That would be absolute confusion, right? I feel like they did. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the problem. Yeah. Is uh, Or imagine if you went to Disneyland and they decided to hire the gardeners and, uh, and, and check the rides during the day when people are supposed to be riding them. You know, these are complicated systems. Our body's even more complicated. And what we're now starting to understand is that there's certain parts of the day that are made for building and eating and working. And there's certain times of the day where the body needs to recharge and get ready for the next day. And that involves breaking down and rebuilding and cleaning out. And this is what's happening during the evening time. And that's why the master clock is so necessary in making sure all the cells of the body are timed in concert so you get dun 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 <laughs> so the super chiasmic nucleus yes um where is that located it's like just above the roof of the mouth kind of or? yes yeah. actually uh it's in the name supra meaning above uh -huh. chiasmatic that's where the um the optic nerves cross over and nucleus just meaning it's a collection of of neurons so it's right above where the the two optic nerves uh come together got it and so this nucleus is essentially telling the pineal gland what to make whether or not to secrete melatonin or not or it is also has to do with cortisol can you kind of yeah. break that out a little bit so think about melatonin as the major hormone that governs the night it's the moon if you will hmm. and think of cortisol as the major hormone that governs the day it's the sun and so depending on what time of day it is, the, uh, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus is going to have a say about it's time to, to uh, secrete melatonin. And it has a direct connection to the pineal gland to tell it not to do it, actually. So if it gets, if it gets stimulated, for instance, by light. So let's say, you're, let's say the sun has gone down. You're, let's say you've got a perfectly timed uh, circadian rhythm and the sun has gone down and it's nighttime. And now the pineal gland is saying, ah, let's now secrete the melatonin that this body needs to be perfectly great. And you decide as a human being, because you have the power to do so, and we have the technology to accomplish it, to expose your eyes to bright light. 
Well, unfortunately, what we now know is that bright light, which hits the retina of the human eye, is going to go back and shut down melatonin production in the pineal gland. Why would that be? That, that would seem like a very bad thing to do. But if you think about it, our body uh, was not designed to be having lights on when it's nighttime. And so this is this is one of the major issues that we see is especially in society is we're on our phones we're on television screens uh, we're on smartphones late at night after nine o'clock it's hitting what we call intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells uh, these are these are ganglion cells in the back of the eye that are not rods and cones. These are right. the rods and cones of what make you see. These are completely different. They go to different parts of the brain. It's sort of a subconscious uh, evaluation of light. Anyway, these go to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. The suprachiasmatic nucleus says, well, wait a minute. I thought it was nighttime. But clearly, we're getting light from the eyes. And therefore, it must not be nighttime. Hey, pineal gland, shut down melatonin production. And that's exactly what happens. Got it. So when we are um, receiving light, particularly blue light, yes. um, through these ganglion receptors... Um, in the evening, that is essentially monkeying with our clock, yes. with the suprachiasmic nucleus, and that is delivering messages to the pineal gland that are screwing up our sleep-wake cycle. And that has a lot of negative knock-on impacts. I mean, you're yes. a quadruple board-certified doctor. One of your focuses is sleep. So yeah, yeah. maybe just unpack for a moment why sleep is so necessary and what happens when we screw with that cycle. Yeah, so um, we need, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, for good reason, recommends that adults should be getting at least seven and up to nine hours of sleep per night. So, and, and that's based on very good data that less than that, generally speaking, leads to a number of problems. Uh, when you don't sleep, you don't rebuild. Um, we can just list off, I mean, metabolic yes. disorders, the diabetes, uh, car accidents, excessive sleepiness, mood disorders. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, the most extreme cases, and I'm sure you've seen these as well, is when these gamers go and play for 48 hours straight and then just drop dead. You know, yeah. why did they drop dead? Well, we don't know exactly, exactly know all the mechanics about what happened, but clearly if you go for a long time without sleep, that's not good for your body. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think about memory consolidation. So yeah. learning that codifies during REM sleep or restoration, uh, muscularly, physiologically, psychologically, that's happening during deep sleep. There's also this system called the glymphatic system, which is yes. sort of akin to the lymphatic system, but, but it's the yes. sort of clean-out function. Right. And I've started to read a little bit about um, like uh, these beta amyloid proteins mm -hmm. that are highly correlated with neurodegenerative disease, like exactly. Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And when you don't clean them out... Uh, you're running a higher risk at dementia. Yeah. I think there's also tau proteins I, too. I mean, we could spend the next hour yeah. talking about every, I mean, you, you name the disease and I can guarantee you it's tied to lack of sleep. It's sleep is what we do for hopefully a third of our life. It's that way for a reason. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because you might think on the surface that it's maladaptive because we're not yeah. consuming food. We're not procreating, you know, we're, 
you know, we're susceptible to predators. So mm-hmm. why do we sleep? But yeah, now, of course you have many of these. Answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, so the other part that, that you had mentioned is, you know, what, what effect does this have? So not, okay. So let's just go back to our initial example there where we have somebody who's being exposed to light and pineal gland shuts down. Mm. Uh, it's, it's even worse than that. Uh, because for that night you're going to have a delayed sleep because you're not getting the melatonin, but it's kind of like your your super chiasmatic nucleus, your master clock is saying, okay, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, and what happens is that it says, okay, well, since there was light this late in the evening, or what I thought was this late in the evening, mm-hmm. maybe it's not really this late in the evening, right. and I need to shift my circuit. Maybe we need to delay things a little bit. And so what happens is your entire clock, your master clock, delays. It's kind of like the conductor is conducting, you know, dun, 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 dun. And somebody in the orchestra is slowing down. So he's got to slow down just to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so everybody has to slow down and that's what's happening. So when you expose your eyes to bright light in the evening on a chronic basis, your circadian rhythm becomes shifted so that now instead of falling asleep or being ready for sleep at 10 o'clock, you're now falling asleep and being ready for sleep at 12 o'clock. And that has a problem because on the back end of that is whereas before you might have been ready to get up in the morning at six o'clock in the morning, now you're getting ready to get up in the morning at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And if your alarm has not changed, that means you're going to be having what we call sleep inertia, which is a funny scientific way of saying, I don't want to get up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And that has all sorts of knock on impacts. Like your boss is pissed. Yes. Your family's pissed. Exactly. <laughs> and you're just not operating at an optimal level and you know you made this very poetic um relationship between cortisol and uh, melatonin as the sun and the moon yeah so when you're disrupting that schedule of melatonin you're also disrupting the natural cortisol release right and so yeah um and cortisol is associated generally with like alertness right yes um so if that's delaying then that is degrading your ability to be alert and to focus earlier in the part of the day. Is that right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cortisol sometimes gets a bad rap because everyone's like, oh, we got to reduce cortisol. We got to re- reduce cortisol. Yeah. At night, it's very important that you have low cortisol levels. It's easier to fall asleep. But when you are getting up in the morning to take on the stresses of the day, it's important to have a good cortisol bolus from your adrenal glands in the morning to take on the day. Bolus. A bolus. Mm. <laughs> to look that up after That's... the podcast. Um, a, an infusion. An infusion. Okay. <laughs> so then let's go into like, well, how does this clock actually get triggered? What are, what are the mechanisms mm-hmm. that puts you on a healthy circadian clock? Good. Okay. So imagine you are living on a desert island. There's no electricity. (laughs) When the sun comes up, you get light in the eye. And when the sun goes down, you cease to have sun sunlight in your eye. And I were to take somebody in that situation and I were to put them here in modern day United States or wherever you want to be. What are some of the things that would manipulate that or change that? Because the, the biggest thing that, that regulates your circadian rhythm is light. Okay. Mm. And just like well, let me put it this way. Light is not all that bad. What we talked about here just now is that it's light late in the evening that will delay your circadian rhythm. And the reason why that is, is because you have these things called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, particularly in the inferior portion of your retina, which is that thing at the back of your eye. So 
generally speaking, because the image gets flipped when you go into your eye, that it, because it's these things are concentrated in the lower portion of your eye, it's going to be light, particularly in the upper aspect, in the superior aspect where the sun is. Oh, evolution. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, if you've got this in the upper portion, then um, it's going to be the thing that affects your circadian rhythm. But it's not the only thing that affects circadian rhythm. Your brain is multifaceted. Food has been recently shown. When mm. you eat uh, can also affect circadian rhythm. Now, when I talk about uh, exposing your eyes to bright light at night, that can delay the circadian rhythm. The opposite is true. If you expose your eyes, or the converse is true, if you expose your eyes to bright light early in the morning, that has the opposite effect. It tends to slightly advance your circadian rhythm, or at least keep it on track. And so one of the things that can be very helpful to make sure that one's circadian rhythm from the desert island being transplanted here into present day America would be beneficial is if people, when they get up in the morning, were exposing their eyes to bright light in the morning. Because what this would do is to maintain it and prevent this drift, this circadian drift of things getting later and later and later. Okay. Well, this is a behavior that I have recently adopted. I'll get up in the morning and uh, have some kind of room temperature water and then go outside and look towards the brighter part of the sky, right? I don't want to look directly at the sun generally. No. Um, yes. But even on a clear, beautiful day, like the one we're having today in Topanga, if I'm looking kind of just into the sky, um, is that enough? And how do you actually measure whether or not it's enough? <laughs> yes. So here's another term we have to introduce, and it's mm -hmm. LUX. Yeah. L-U-X. Um, and it basically is a measurement of the intensity of light. Really, it's, it's the density. And the way it's defined is if you take a candle uh, in a dark room and you hold a one meter by one meter, it's about three feet, about three feet away from that candle, the low intensity light that would be emitting on that uh, piece of paper or cardboard is one lux. So it's very low. So if we were to look at things relatively, if you look at the amount of light that you would have in a living room, it's about 50 lux. It's, it's pretty low. If you were to go outside in bright sunlight, it's 100,000 lux. Wow. So there, the, the point I want to make here is that the difference in terms of lighting in a living room versus outside is much, much, much more than we perceive as a human being. Because any good photographer will know that you can adjust the iris, you can adjust all. These things happen in our eyes automatically when we go from inside to outside. But any photographer would know that if you set up a camera to take a photograph inside a living room and use those exact settings and go outside, it would be a big white blotch is all you, you wouldn't see anything because mm -hmm. it's so much more intensely bright. Here's the reason why that's important is that you may feel like you're getting light exposure in your own house in the morning when you turn the lights on, but it's orders of magnitude higher if you go outside, uh, outside into the actual physical space of, of being outside because the amount of light there is so much more brighter. It's gonna do so much more for you. And why that's important is for a couple of reasons. We, talked, uh, we talk about being exposed to light at night. Your retinal, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that are what we're talking about here are very sensitive at night, unfortunately. So just a little bit of light at night is enough to shut down melatonin production and delay your circadian rhythm. Unfortunately, in the morning, those same 
intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are not as sensitive. And so you need a lot more light to get the same benefit. Now, how much light do you need? So let's, let's actually put this down into brass tacks and real numbers. It's about 3000 lux hours. So what does that mean? If you were to put your eyes in front of something that's 3000 lux and spend one hour, that would be enough. Or if you were to spend 20 minutes in front of something that's 10,000 lux, okay? Yeah. Or you were to spend one-tenth of 20 minutes, which would be two minutes, in front of something that's 100,000. So you, so you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So the brighter light that you're in, the faster you're going to get what you need out of those intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Got it. And in order to get the proper amount of lux, do you necessarily need to be looking up at it, given that these, I'll try to say. Yeah, you don't want to blind <laughs> in, yourself. Yeah, <laughs> intrinsic photosynthesized oh. retinal ganglion cells yes. are in the inferior, in the lower part of your retina. Yes. So do you need to be perceiving this light uh, in an upward trajectory? No, in fact, what you want to do is keep your eyes level mm. because if you were to look up at the light, oh, right. then what would happen is, is now that light would be shining in, the, in sort of the center of your retina. And to have them shining in the inferior portion, you want the light up high and you want to be looking kind of, of level. This is actually what we do. Let's say there's, for instance, there's many people that when they get up at five or six in the morning, there is no sun right? Because of, of uh, where they are on the planet. Right. And so uh, what you can actually buy are these things called SAD boxes or SAD boxes. SAD stands for seasonal affective disorder, which is one of the consequences, by the way. Uh, it's a different pathway. It's, it's instead of the retinal uh, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells going to the, um, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, there are actually some neurons that go to something else, another part of the brain that actually regulates mood. And so when they don't get enough sunlight, not only does the suprachiasmatic nucleus suffer, but also their mood suffers. And so what we do for them is get them these sad boxes. And these sad boxes generate about a 10,000 lux. And mm -hmm. so what we do is we have them place it in front of them about 15 inches away from their face. And it's up high so that when it hits the eye, it's, it's illuminating the inferior portion of the retina. Got it. So let's say that your job... Um, essentially imposes its own self yeah. on you and you have to be subject to some light in the evening. Uh, am I uh, deducing properly that that light, you might want to keep that light lower? Yes. And in a certain spectrum range, right? Yes. So we know that it's particularly blue light that is the most sensitive at, in terms of exciting these uh, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, but even just a photon of light, even light in a room that's ambient with your eyes closed is enough to diminish um, this melatonin production because of this excitation. So what we try to do is let's, let's give you what the best case scenario is. The best case scenario is turning off all the lights and going to bed shortly after nine o'clock. That's, that's the best case scenario, but we don't always live in the best case scenario. So uh, what would we go from there? We are trying to reduce as much as possible. So making the lights low down, because lights that are low down on the floor, like maybe even the uh, 
you know, you know these emergency lights that you have that come on if the power goes out, um, they will be reflecting up on the superior aspect of the retina, and that's not where those uh, retinal ganglion cells are. Also, because blue light seems to be more uh, stimulating to these, moving things more toward the red spectrum would be a better way of doing things because you'll get less stimulation per lux. Hmm. Uh, and then having your upper lights on dimmers or completely turning them off would be actually the best thing to do. Yeah. Are you a subscriber to the blue blocking glasses? I think it's it's a reasonable thing to do, especially at night. I would definitely say, though, that if you want to get good sunlight exposure in the morning time, you want as much blue light as possible. So, right. so uh, it depends on the time of day, just like everything else we're talking about. So blue blockers at night, not a bad idea. In fact, even setting your computer with a setting that after a certain time, it goes to a more of a blue blocker type of, of relay. And a lot of those screens actually have that built in uh, and maybe even wearing blue blockers at night. But in the daytime, in the morning especially, you don't want to really be blocking that blue light because that's exactly what we want to be stimulating. Yeah. So you addressed seasonal affective disorder a little bit. Yeah. Um, is there a correlation between that kind of um, depression um, and or lack of sleep at different latitudes? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if that there actually has been published associations on that. Um, I, I think that there is that sleep probably affects both genders uh, about the same, maybe maybe females a little bit more. We definitely have information, though, that females are more susceptible to this SAD or the seasonal affective disorder. Mm -hmm. And if you live in uh, Sweden, for example, my stepmother is Swedish, and uh, obviously that's a very different um, uh, schedule of light versus yeah. living at the equator. Yeah. So what are some of the techniques that you would um, advise or counsel on if you are living in a place that has a great amount of variation uh, as it pertains to one's ability to get natural light? Yeah. So, so obviously, this is going to be a, sunlight is going to be a scarce resource in the wintertime. Yeah. So try to maximize your ability to get outside in the sun. One aspect that we didn't we alluded to, but we didn't say much about was um, the amount of light that comes through on the position of the sun. Hmm. So real briefly, um, when the, the sun really has to be high overhead to get any kind of uh, ultraviolet light. But regardless of where the sun is on the sky, infrared is usually going to penetrate. So even though you might not be getting ultraviolet in the wintertime because the sun is not high enough, you're still getting infrared radiation, right? When that sun comes up, the snow is still melting. It's because of infrared that it's melting. That's mm. what's doing it. Oh, that's so, yeah. So, uh, but if it, like in Sweden, for instance, in the morning, sometimes it, it takes like what, seven, eight, nine o'clock in the morning before the sun is, uh, is, is coming up. So what do you do in that situation? I think the light box is a, is, is a good way of using technology to our benefit, uh, to avoid some of those things. And it's, it works very well. There's been a number of studies that have shown that morning light in the form of a light box morning light in the form of what we call dawn simulation. That's another way of, of simulating the dawn that comes up. You can actually buy these lights that are full spectrum in your room. And uh, as you're sleeping, the light just starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter, even though your eyes are closed. And the studies have shown that these people have less sleep inertia. Again, that means mm. just they feel better. They want to wake up and they have more energy when the light is coming on in the morning. Yeah. And so... Just to close this particular chapter, 
when there is a secretion of melatonin, what is the mechanism there by which melatonin makes one feel somewhat hypnotized or sleepy or, or tired? What's the... What is the link there between melatonin and actually going to sleep? Well, melatonin has its effect in terms of, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing a little bit because the circadian rhythm is really what makes us feel sleepy and want us to go to bed. There's actually Mm. two things in there. There's the homeostatic drive and the circadian rhythm drive. So melatonin is both a byproduct of, of the circadian rhythm, but it's also feeds on the circadian rhythm and tells it where it moves. So I think in terms of what is it that really makes us ready to fall asleep is in part melatonin because people who take melatonin will feel sleepy. It does kind of put you to sleep. There are melatonin receptors in the brain that does that. But the the real thrust of what makes us really fall asleep and get good rest is this um, homeostatic drive, which we haven't talked about up to this point, but has to do with adenosine and adenosine receptors. And then the circadian rhythm, which is overlaid on that. uh, And and that allows us to also go to sleep. you may think that the shifting of the circadian rhythm is kind of an evil thing, right? Why can't we just keep it right where it is? Well, think about this. If you were to you know, jump on a plane and fly to New York or fly to Europe, you'd want that ability to, for that circadian rhythm to, to migrate because that's exactly what has to happen when you get to those places. Right. And in fact, there's a whole other science on what can you do now to speed up your migration or your jet lag so when you get to the place you don't have a problem and if you if you understand what we've talked about today you can actually do this ahead of time so that when you arrive in in london you you know you're 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 already ready to go and you don't have as much problems with jet lag yeah there's another episode to be done on the nature of caffeine yes. and, aden- and adenosine and adenosine receptors i think that that's a whole other yeah. fascinating thing that i don't think people really completely understand about the nature of drinking coffee etc yeah just one more point on the sleep-wake cycle and its relationship with sun and and melatonin. Would you ever recommend supplementing with melatonin? Yeah, I think supplementation with melatonin has its place. The problem is, is that the majority of people who take melatonin take way too much melatonin. Hmm. So the amount of melatonin that you need to simulate the pineal gland secretion is around the order of one to two, maybe even three milligrams of melatonin. Most people are taking five to 10 milligrams, which is far too much. And it really doesn't, it actually works less well when you're taking that much melatonin. So if you are going to take it, I would recommend taking it one to one hour or so before bedtime. I would, I would try first with one milligram. Um, very small amount is really what you need to do. And what this is going to do is help the pineal gland. You know, I don't know if it needs help, but some people feel that they need it. I think far more, far more, um, uh, efficacious than taking a melatonin supplement is to turn down lights and mm. to make sure that lights are dim. It's, it's, it's much better and it's much more, um, natural and endogenous. Got it. I keep promising that we're going to move on, but I have you here, <laughs> okay. so okay. I have to get it at it. Which is, um, do are is the release of melatonin is the time window individuated? Like, there's this notion of chronotype that everyone has a different yes. chronotype, which essentially determines the window in which uh, melatonin is secreted. Is that? Do you believe in chronotypes? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They, they definitely exist. There's no question. There's there's what we call morning larks and evening owls. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, based on the data, that the majority of those people are there because of behavior. Uh, 
But that being said, there are a subsection of people who definitely have gene polymorphisms that just because of all the clock genes, BMAL, clock one, clock two, per one, per two, these are all genes that we can measure in the human body. Uh, because of mutations and because of, of, uh, of mutations essentially that cause uh, issues with, the, with their circadian rhythm, they actually are more of a lark or an owl. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. I want to move into the more surprising yes. part of the conversation. I think we've thoroughly covered the relationship between melatonin and sleep and the circadian clock. Um, now we're going to go into... Uh, a really new and previously uncharted territory for melatonin. Now, but first, I, th I think we need to do a little more term defining, okay? Okay. So um, the body produces energy um, in what is called the mitochondria. Can you talk a little bit about what the mitochondria is? Yeah, so inside of the cell are what we call organelles. These are little... You know, if the, if the cell was a human being, the cell would have organs inside of it, okay? And that's mm -hmm. what this is. It's an organelle. So the mitochondria is responsible for taking basically food products that are high in energy, mostly from the sun. So the three groups of things that we eat are fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And we could get to a lot technical talk, but we just waste a lot of time with this and would just be showing off enzymes. <laughs> but it all ends up in the mitochondria in the form of acetyl-CoA, two carbon fragments, whether it's from fats, whether it's from sugars, whether it's from proteins. And then once the, the two carbons are end up in the matrix of the mitochondria, it goes to this thing called the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle basically extracts these high energy electrons from these food particles and um, makes things like NADH and FADH2. These are these are compounds which, which are, have high energy electrons. And then it goes to something called the electron transport chain, which is in the, there's sort of an inner membrane of the mitochondria. And that's where these electron transport uh, molecules are. And then begins this thing I was talking about before was the Colorado River. It starts up in Colorado and slowly meanders its way down into the, the Gulf of California. And as it does so, it loses altitude. And, and at every dam, there's a, a dropping of that water. And of course, the water is harnessed to turn turbines and generate electricity. Well, what happens here is essentially the same thing. It's these high-energy electrons drop down in this electron transport chain. And at every point where it drops down, it's that, that energy is harnessed to pump protons uh, into the inner membrane space, which is later used for production of ATP, which is the final common product of all of this, right? Everything runs off of ATP. Well, as we said, imagine the water now trickling into, uh, about to trickle into the Gulf of California. What body of water is acceptable to take this water? Well, it's something that's gotta be really low. In fact, it's the ocean. There's nothing lower than the ocean, right? Okay. And in this case, it's oxygen. And this is the reason why we breathe. And when we stop breathing and stop getting oxygen, things shut down pretty quickly. Right. And this is why we're so unique that aerobic energy production is so massively productive right. uh, versus anaerobic right. energy production, which is basically fermentation, right. um, which only makes like a couple ATP. But this is making like 32, 34 ATP, Correct. which animates every single thing that we do, every thought that we have, every yeah. um, motor uh, movement. Um, and this is just an 
once you break down that process of cellular respiration, which we could do some other time, right. it's just like mind blowing what's happening uh, mm -hmm. at the cellular level. But one of the byproducts, uh, as you mentioned earlier, of the of the production of ATP are these reactive oxygen species. Is that right? Correct. So now the the water as it goes down to the the Gulf of California and it's it's emptying in. Um, it, it's supposed to really oxygen is supposed to take those four electrons and make water and water is this wonderful molecule that never hurts anything right it's the universal solvent it's everywhere it's great but what happens when exactly we've Cheer. got it right here we Laheim. can yes there we go there we go this is the water i always wonder how many where this water has been in the last you know millennium it's, yeah where has it been who knows right where probably has it, where has it not been exactly <laughs> some of it went over niagara falls who knows Anyway, so the po the problem is is getting from oxygen to water is great, but it takes four electrons to get there, and sometimes, especially when there's a lot of throughput, when there's a lot of carbohydrates that are going through the system, when there's a lot of proteins, a lot of, of fats going through the system, the system can be overwhelmed, and when the system is overwhelmed, that's kind of like revving your engine up to six thousand RPMs, uh, it gets hot. And the reason why it's getting hot is it's burning a lot of energy and there's a lot of waste. No engine is perfect. Mm -hmm. And the electron transport chain is no, uh, it, it's, it's not an exception to that rule. And so what you make are these, uh, instead of making water, you make a whole bunch of species in between that have one electron only or two electrons only or three. And this is kind of like going to a couple's uh, dance with a few singles. <laughs> right? The singles are going to really mess up that whole thing. It's like, who are these singles that are coming to a couple's dance? Well, that's what these electron species are. They've only got one electron and everyone else has got two and everyone else is doing fine. And so this one comes along with one electron and it steals it from someone else. And so now there's something else that's left with one electron and it, it basically it damages the proteins, right. just like heat would damage the engine. Right. So these are highly reactive compounds in our system that could really cause a lot of damage and what are yeah. and some of the downstream impacts of oxidative oh. stress are i mean think about damaging a protein whatever would happen with damaging a protein whether it's um whether it's alzheimer's disease in the brain or whether it's diabetes because the insulin molecule is not working well there there are so many diseases that are tied now to mitochondrial dysfunction diabetes suboptimal health neurodegenerative diseases even autism wow. has been linked to mitochondrial dysfunction I'll tell you a really sad story. This is a little off script, okay? So yeah. I went to this dance school as a young boy. I went kicking and screaming, but all my friends would go. Yeah. And I was sort of like an awkward, chubby kid. And so they, the, the dance teachers would you know, do the demonstration in the middle of the gym floor, and then there would be like 50 uh, girls on one side of the gym and like 51 <laughs> boys on the other side of the gym and then they would say go and everyone would pair off yes and i would be left wandering around oh, no. the gym with no one to love you were the hydroxy no radical i was the hydroxy <laughs> radical i was a reactive oxygen species and boy was i reactive yes <laughs> i was causing a lot of damage there um, and the teacher came in and, and she will, will turn out to be the melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've set it up. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll keep pulling on this analogy. Yeah. Um, so, okay, now we've got an issue within the mitochondria yeah. where through this energy uh, production process, you know, uh-oh, we've made a few reactive oxygen species or a few re uh, free radicals. Yeah. But fortunately, 
there is a system to counteract that, right? Correct. So, so before we move on, there, I want to make sure that people understand that reactive oxygen species are not always bad. So mm-hmm. because reactive oxygen species are so damaging, it's, it's actually one of the weapons that our immune system uses to kill bacteria. Mm-hmm. So for instance, the, the macrophage, which is part of the, the white blood cell system, will go through and when it encompasses a bacteria, it will surround it and it will use this very system of reactive oxygen species to kill the bacteria. Yeah, and there's this field, this emerging field of uh, adversity mimetics or yeah. like uh, engaging in bacteria in uh, behaviors that elicit a kind of a hormetic response that are often short-term oxidative stress. So I believe like even hyd- some forms of hydrotherapy like mm-hmm. cold bathing or yeah. something or high-intensity interval training, although we could, yes. that might not be the greatest thing. We could talk about that at some other time. Sure, but sure. even I think fasting or any stress um, that doesn't kill you make you stronger, right? Yeah. And so oxidative stress sometimes gets painted as a completely pejorative circumstance, but as right. you say, not always. Right, and it's a lot more complex. And I would argue that the reason why that those things are beneficial is because you are in meter doses right exposing the body to something like this that the body now has to amplify the counter so it's ready to go when something happens that's not a meter dose yeah uh, in in that sense so yeah so um uh the these reactive oxygen species are used and the other point i wanted to make before we go on and talk about what melatonin does is realize that reactive oxygen species are so reactive that in order to have a solution for them, they have to be there on site. Hmm. In other words, these reactive oxygen species don't have to travel very far to be able to do damage. The first molecule that they bump into, they're going to react with. And so in other words, you have to have enough of the right stuff nearby to be able to mitigate that that problem. Got it. And the melatonin that we talked about in the first half of this conversation, that is secreted by the pineal gland, that's, that's right, and that yeah. is secreted into the bloodstream. So that's serum melatonin. That's correct. Um, but we're talking about, we're about to talk about something very different, right? Correct, exactly. Now, now, granted, that that serum melatonin does get into the cells and get into the mitochondria. And in fact, that is the, one of the solutions that we're talking about. So what is, the, in other words, if, if the mitochondria is the engine of the body and it's making locomotion, but oops, as a side effect, it's making heat. And how do we take care of this heat? What's the oil? What's the, what's the water cooling system? In fact, it is melatonin. And the, the solution, there's a solution that's completely different for the day than there is for at night. Yeah. And here, and here it is. So at night, we've already discussed what it is. It's melatonin that's secreted from the pineal gland, pineal, pineal, different ways of, of pronouncing it. But that goes from the serum into the cell and then into the mitochondria, and it does its job there, very interestingly. And so at night, you're not using your engine that much. It's, it's idling. It's down at 1,000 or maybe 700 RPM. And so you don't need a lot of melatonin. You don't need the cooling system as, as much at that time. Right. And you're probably not making as much energy because you're in a quote unquote somewhat fasted state. Correct. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So not only are you not using it, but you're not producing it as much. Contrast that with the day. So in the day, high amounts of energy are being utilized. Not only are you utilizing energy, you're eating food stuffs, and that's going through the mitochondria. And so essentially, instead of at 700 or 1,000 RPM, you're chugging along at 3,000, maybe even 4,000 RPM. 
Certainly, if you don't have a cooling system, you're going to be in trouble. So what's the solution? It's actually melatonin. But you're mm -hmm. like, wait a minute. I thought you just said that when we expose our eyes to bright light at night or even during the day, our pineal gland doesn't make melatonin. How is it happening? Now we have the discussion about infrared radiation. So there was a paper that was published uh, about a year or so ago by um, the, mel the, the chief editor at uh, Melatonin Journal, which is uh, Russell Ryder and another colleague of his, uh, Scott Zimmerman, who reviewed the data. The title of the, of the article was The Optics of the Human Body. And what they were looking at was this idea that melatonin, we know for a fact, we've got the data that shows that melatonin, without a shadow of doubt, is produced on site in the mitochondria. Uh, it's just fascinating. In fact, not only is it produced in the mitochondria itself, it's produced in amounts that are orders of magnitude higher than what we see in the pineal gland. Wow. Because we hear a lot about glutathione. Yes. That became a very famous yes. uh, antioxidant, if yes. you will. Yes. But we don't really hear about this phenomenon of melatonin um, being produced in the mitochondria. How does that actually happen? Well, they actually did some uh, biochemical and organic chemistry studies where they would label the carbons in the precursors, as we've mentioned, uh, serotonin. And then when they were able to actually measure, and it's really difficult to do this, you've got to get into the cell, into an organelle of a cell, and do what we call micropipetting, and they'd be able to actually extract specifically from that area. And they were able to find that the carbons that were labeled in serotonin showed up in the melatonin that they were extracting. Hmm. So they, they've shown it very elegantly. They've isolated the enzyme that does this. There's no question that melatonin is secreted in, uh, is produced actually on site in the, uh, in the, in the uh, mitochondria. So you're telling me that infrared light, non-visible infrared light, uh, essentially permeates the skin, moves into our mitochondria and has some form of reaction or catalyzes part of the mitochondria to create melatonin. What, what is to, that? To, to actually improve or increase the production, yeah. Right. So um, this is empiric evidence is what they're looking at. They've proposed this in their, in their study, uh, in their, in their um, article, that there are receptors in cytochrome C oxidase. Now, that's, mm -hmm. that's a long word, but it's an enzyme at the very end of the electron transport chain. And um, there are receptors in the cytochrome C oxidase. I think when they named this, they knew very early on cytochrome, chrome being light, right. that these types of enzymes uh, had the ability to absorb certain um, types of, of light. And that's exactly what they have shown is um, they have very, very good empirical evidence that when you shine near infrared light uh, on the skin, for instance, that there is an increase in cytochrome C oxidase uh, in that portion uh, in the blood that, that comes back. And, and there's also an increase in nitric oxide, which causes vasodilation. There's right. an increase in uh, hydroxy, um, uh, sorry, oxyhemoglobin, which carries the oxygen to the cells. Um, what they are, are showing or what they believe happens in their proposal is that melatonin levels go up dramatically when the uh, cell is hit with near-infrared radiation because this near-infrared radiation increases the metabolic rate increases the mitochondrial um, uh, activity mm -hmm. in those cells. So getting a lot of sunlight 
has a mixed reputation. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes we associate uh, getting too much sun um, with certain melanomas, et cetera. But that is mostly associated with UV rays, right? And we're talking about near infrared uh, rays, which are the other side of the spectrum, right? Exactly. And so if you were to counsel someone around getting the proper and right amount of sun, yes, how would you go about that? So you're um, decreasing the mal effects and increasing the good effects from near infrared. Here's the good news. The, the, just as you mentioned, the worst offensive form of light in terms of damaging rays is ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, fortunately, really can't penetrate well through clothes. Mm. Near-infrared radiation, on the other hand, has very low levels of ionizing radiation and doesn't cause a lot of damage. The good news is, is that infrared light can penetrate through clothes. And even more than that is that infrared radiation is the type of light specifically that bounces off of green leaves, grass, and, uh, and foliage, basically. And so if you want to minimize ultraviolet radiation, the damaging rays, avoid going out into the sun between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. when it's the highest in overhead. But any other time, even going outside not in direct sunlight in an area that's very rich in green leaves and trees, you're going to get plenty of near-infrared radiation. So in other words, if you want the, the benefits of near-infrared radiation coming to your mitochondria, coming to your skin, you don't have to go you know, exposed. You don't have to go out into direct sunlight. You can go outside any time of day. And so long as you're surrounded by a lot of trees and green grass, even if you're not, you're going to get near-infrared light. That's the good news. Mm. So you're telling us to get out into nature. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Somehow the, we knew that. The but... only thing that, the only problem is, is, is indoors. Yeah. If you're indoors, you're not going to get this. How much time do we spend indoors as a culture in the Western world? Well, the, the evidence is our, our, we spend about 7% of our, of our life outside. Mm. And that used to be much higher, um, 50%, 75%. Right. So we're looking at, because we're more sedentary, we're more inside, we're getting less sunlight. We're also getting, by extension, much less infrared radiation, right? Exactly. And so then that's going down, but then we're looking at all of these chronic diseases mm -hmm. and, and including infectious diseases like COVID. Right. Um, but we're looking more generally at chronic diseases that are highly associated with oxidative stress. Yes. And they are efflorescent. They're going like this. Yes. So do you feel as if there could be a correlation between our sedentary indoor existence and this increasing trend in, in chronic disease associated with oxidative stress? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question there's a correlation. The only question is, is, is there a causation? And that's merely academic because you can never say that something is caused by something that's correlated, but boy, mm -hmm. it certainly looks very, um, very likely. Okay. So let's shift a, just a few degrees to COVID. Yeah. Um, because I believe that you have found data 
that shows, again, a high correlation between COVID infection and particularly severe COVID infection and levels of oxidative stress. Is that correct? Absolutely. They, there was a study that was just published about a month or two ago. Uh, this is early 2022 that looked at three different uh, aspects of oxidative stress in the human body. One of them was looking at the reserve of, of the reserve of antioxidants in the form of glutathione. And by the way, you mentioned glutathione. Melatonin actually regulates glutathione. Hmm. So in terms of glutathione being, being the, the king daddy, no, yes. it's actually the big boss is melatonin. In fact, melatonin is twice as powerful an antioxidant as vitamin E. So, wow. uh, so, you know, Glutathione just got uh, dethroned. Melatonin is the new <laughs> it got king. Knocked out. Yeah, it got knocked out because melatonin actually regulates glutathione. Wow. So for all for just to, just to put it in its place, glutathione is important and it's a good measurement. And that's in fact what they measured in this study is how much glutathione was was in the cell. The next thing that they looked at was they looked at oxidative damage, and um, the amount of sorry the amount of oxidative stress. And then the last thing they measured was the oxidative damage, and it, it was the same pattern every time. They found two findings. Number one is as you get older, the amount of oxidative stress goes up innately, even mm -hmm. without COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And the amount of oxidative damage goes up and the amount of oxidative or uh, reactive or glutathione goes down. So in other words, as you get older, all the things that make you more susceptible to an oxidative stress test goes up. And that's exactly what we would have expected. But when they looked at those people along those same age lines who had COVID now, it was actually put to an extreme. People who had less oxidative reserve had even less oxidative reserve in COVID. People who had oxidative damage had even more oxidative damage in COVID. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear that this was the key case. And, and it, it shouldn't come as any surprise because we know from studies that ACE2, which is the target of SARS-CoV-2, is very instrumental in the regulation of oxidative stress in the cell. ACE2 actually converts something called angiotensin 2 into angiotensin 1-7. Angiotensin 2 is a very powerful pro-oxidant. Angiotensin 1-7 is an antioxidant. So it's kind of like uh, if you're playing basketball, right? Uh, and you're going down the court, your team is, uh, steals the ball and prevents them from making a basket and then goes down the court and scores a basket. They call that a four-point switch, yeah. right? When you steal a ball, that's exactly what happens with ACE2. It, it destroys something that's going to cause oxidation and instead creates something that's going to prevent oxidation. That's a, that's a four-point switch. Hmm. And what happens when the SARS-CoV-2 virus hits that ACE2 receptor, it shuts it down. And now that's no longer happening. So you have a buildup of pro-oxidants, you have a depletion of antioxidants, and the oxidative stress that gets put on that cell is tremendous. If it is out of balance to begin with, because of all of these issues that we've talked about, right. that might be enough to just knock it over the edge. And people with obesity, diabetes, elderly age, these are all the things that we see, not surprising, that are problems in COVID-19. Wow, so from our discussion that we've had, we know that near-infrared radiation stimulates the production of melatonin at the mitochondrial level, which can be a very powerful antioxidant. Yep. So in COVID, we just discussed, you just outlined the fact that people that have severe COVID have high levels of oxidative damage. Yes. So then I would ask you by extension, would, would treating 
um, people with COVID with sunlight, either prophylactically or therapeutically, be a legitimate treatment? Well, this is where it gets exciting. Yeah. This is where it gets really exciting <laughs> because uh, this is exactly what people have looked at. Let, let's look at the obvious thing first, and that's vitamin D. And vitamin D has been looked at a long time. And there's no question whatsoever that vitamin D levels are correlated with COVID-19 outcomes. The question has always been, if you were to give vitamin D, would it um, change the outcome? And, and there's been some mixed results on that. There have been some studies that seem to be positive, and there's other studies that have, have not. And the question really becomes then, is vitamin D actually doing something or is it a marker of what something else is happening? So in other words, if I'm getting a lot of near-infrared radiation from the sun, I'm also going to typically have higher vitamin D levels. Right. But maybe it's not the vitamin D that's doing it. Maybe it's the near-infrared making melatonin that's having a helping hand. And so here's a couple of studies that really illuminate that. No, no pun intended. There was a study that was done in Europe where they looked at the surge in the wintertime. Every country in Europe in 2021 had a surge uh, in terms of um, COVID-19. And what they did was they wanted to look at three variables, humidity, temperature, and latitude. And they wanted to know were, which one of these things correlated the most about when the surge occurred in terms of timing. Hmm. There was no correlation with temperature. There was no correlation with humidity. There was a perfect correlation with latitude. What I mean to say is, is that the northern latitude countries in Europe had the peak first. So it started in Finland first. That was the first country to have their spike. And the last country to have their spike was Greece. And all of the countries in between followed suit almost one by one as like dominoes falling. So that led highly to a discussion that maybe there's something in sunlight that is giving people enough protection that when it is withdrawn, that's when populations start to fall and you start to get these peaks. Hmm. So there was another group out of the University of Edinburgh that, that did a study in the United States, and they had a similar conclusion. They said, maybe it's not vitamin D. So what they did in the winter uh, of 2021 is they uh, completely eliminated the portions of the country of the United States, generally speaking, south of the Tennessee border, um, that could get enough vitamin D from the sunlight. So they were just looking at, in other words, the northern portions of the United States. And they asked this question, does latitude in the United States correlate with mortality from COVID-19? Hmm. And the answer was yes. The higher the latitude, the higher the mortality. Wow. Higher latitudes are, of course, associated with less sunlight. Yeah. So then they took that data and they prospectively analyzed data from England. They came up with exactly the same conclusion, that latitude predicted mortality. The higher the latitude, the more north they were, the higher the mortality. And it even they then applied it to Italy and they found exactly the same thing. And the conclusions of the authors said that if this is causative, if, if this, if this is correlative, but if this were to turn out to be causative, I, I love how they said this, this could lead to public health interventions. So what kind of public health intervention? And, and you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because when you look back at history, we almost, it almost seems as though we're rediscovering things that we knew in, 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 100 years ago because this is what they used to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, meditation yeah. and yoga yeah. and many, the paleo diet gets uh, billed as something that's new. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. funny with a name like that. But um, 
or just, you know, organic and regenerative farming, for example. That's just the way that we used to do it. Right. Um, and, and this is not to undermine or undercut many of the incredibly important advancements of modern medicine, particularly on the infectious disease side, uh, yep. side and tr- treatment around trauma, etc. But it is very, very interesting that we are rediscovering many of these modalities and techniques that actually are quite old yes. that were, that might in some ways have been intuited yeah. by thinkers or doctors um, without the benefit of you know great tools of science but that that may be highly effective at at preventing disease or or helping human f- flourishing so yeah um, it's fascinating. And, you know, um, on your YouTube video that uh, you and Kyle re- uh, released recently on the MedCram channel, you have some just unbelievable photos <laughs> yeah. of, uh, uh, I, mean, I think these are like 100 years old, yeah. right? Yeah. Of a hospital with beds yeah. lined up outside yeah. in the sunlight. Yeah. So so if you look at some of these hospitals and what they did 100 years ago, I, I know of, I've read of uh, one Dr. Wells Rubel who wrote about this, his experience during the pandemic. And what they were doing at that time. And he he refers to this as rational therapy. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and he compared his, his experience to that, what was going on in the army hospitals. Okay, let's talk about what his experience was. And when we look at this, we can see that this is what in fact the case is when they were treating patients with influenza, they were put they were having them go outside into the sunlight. They were having them uh, exposed uh, in the sunlight and also to fresh air. They were doing um, hydrotherapy, which is basically hot, cold treatments. And when he looked at the infectivity uh, fatality ratio, which is basically how many people died versus how many people got infected, they were one-sixth the rate of what was going on in the Army hospital. Now, what was going on in the Army hospital? They were inside. They weren't going outside. They were getting high doses of aspirin that had just come out in 1899, Bayer aspirin. They said the Bayer aspirin, the German Bayer aspirin killed more Americans than the German bullets. This is often said. It's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, because what what would this do? It would kill the fever. It would reduce fever. And and fever, we know, is one of the, the benchmarks of our immune system. So you put all of this together, not just the sunlight, not just the fresh air, but also the hot, cold therapy, the things that... We're using technology to help our body do what it needs to do. And you look at those photographs that you mentioned about, and this is not just in the United States. Some of those photographs were from England. It seems as though we, we kind of knew how to treat this a uh, hundred years ago. Now, we may have had technology that has invented antibiotics and medications. And, and I think those things are good in, in a place. But what we've done is we've, we've totally bought into that as, as being exclusive and we took something that was working and we've completely ignored it. And that, I think that's the problem. Yeah. And, and I think it um, warrants saying that human evolution has, that there are certain mechanisms that are inherent to humans that are adaptive due to human evolution. And, um, and that as a more general statement, um, I think what we're finding is that technology and culture is in some ways outpacing mm. our ability to adapt or is outpacing evolution, you know, because, yeah. you know, if you, for example, 
you know, we've talked today about, okay, our sedentary lives that have brought us kind of inside and away from the sun, well, uh, and getting light at the wrong times and the technology that have prolonged the day into the night. Um, but you could also look at um, the availability of food on a 24-7, 365 day basis where there's no scarcity anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's due to great technological innovation. And, um, but on the other hand, now, you know, one might say that, that refined sugar and refined grain is, uh, is more deadly than famine. Yeah. So, yeah. So in a, in a, in a way, you know, culture and technology, uh, like I said, is sort of outpacing our ability to adapt to it. Yes. And, um, and that is causing a lot of very negative downstream <laughs> effects. It, it is. And, and I don't know how the human body would be able to adapt just theoretically, because what, what I'm seeing when I talk about some of these things like exercise, um, we, we've known for years that exercise is beneficial for the cardiovascular system. But exercise is good for depression. Exercise is good for anxiety. Exercise is good for just a whole bunch of things that we can test. How is the body going to, I mean, there's so many things that, that exercise is good for. How is the body going to adapt to not doing exercise? That's, that's <laughs> going to be, I mean, those are multiple, you know what I mean? I don't so, know. This so, is some science, science fiction yeah. depiction of we're just one giant large brain, <laughs> you know, all hooked into each other yes. with a keyboard or something. Yeah, I don't know. How, yeah. I don't know if that's better. <laughs> I don't think it is. I yeah. mean, I think honestly, yeah. you know, getting up um, and getting out into the sun yeah. in a healthy way. And you've outlined, you know, we don't have to necessarily get into direct sun. Correct. Uh, in order to get the near infrared rays that, that help to stimulate or upgrade, upregulate right. um, melatonin production in the mitochondria. So, you know, this is just living a healthy life. And, um, and obviously, you know, maintaining one's, uh, sleep rhythm, yeah. as we've discussed, uh, upregulates all of these different processes from insulin sensitivity and, um, cardiovascular health and right. even gut health, right. you know? So, um, I guess, you know, if you were to deliver to our listeners, you know, a handful of bullet points in yes. terms of kind of actionable things that they can apply to their own life as it pertains to sunlight and yeah. health. What, what would those be? Well, I would say let's, in your mind, picture what we would look like about 100 to 200 years ago. Okay. And, and think about what they were doing and what they had to do and what we can do today, but maybe not taking it up on it. So let's, let's imagine we're in the wheat fields of Kansas 150 years ago. It's bright. We're outside. We're doing um, some some labor, perhaps that is uh, gainful. Um, we're in the fresh air. We, uh, when the sun starts to go down, we go inside. Um, we, uh, at, when the sun literally is going down at seven or eight o'clock at night, we're going in. We're maybe doing a few hours of of some, you know, getting things together, and we're in bed by nine o'clock. Uh, the next morning, things are up. We're going outside. The cock's crowing. Uh, we're so here's the point. Uh, let's let's put it in terms of um, let's put it in terms of modern day America where we are right now and and maybe even let's make it difficult and say you've got a, a shift worker who goes in at seven o'clock in the morning and comes home at seven o'clock at night that's that's very difficult something that I have to do I work with a lot of nurses that do that as well so I think it's really important that we get up at a reasonable hour that allows us to do what we need to do and I'll just say five o'clock in the morning 
I know that sounds really early. Um, for some, it may be six. You can adjust this as you need to. Some people don't need to get up that early. But getting up at an early hour, like around five, and not eating for about an hour. Why is this? Because you've been sleeping now for hopefully seven or eight hours. That's important. And extending that fast gives you that little bit opportunity to allow that rebuilding to occur, that breaking down and that rebuilding to occur. Um, and then have a, have a great breakfast, have a good breakfast. Um, the reason why I say that is because we know that insulin is more sensitive in the morning than it is in the evening. Uh, that's important because uh, you don't have to have as much insulin secreted to take care of the glucose that you're going to have at that point. Um, it, it seems to be giving you energy for the day and you're not storing it if you're eating that in the morning. Now, people may disagree on that, but I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Then going off to work. Uh, so you're, you're at work. If you're lucky, you had some sun exposure before you went to work because when you get to work, you're not going to get any sun exposure. The windows are not going to allow that infrared radiation. You're probably going to be outside. So if you don't have access to light, if you can't go outside and get bright light, get a light box and, and get exposed to light, maybe 10,000 lux, stay in 11 to 15 inches from it, make sure it's above you, but keep your eyes level and get the benefit of at least grounding your circadian rhythm. Then go to work, do what you need to do. Uh, you get a lunch break. If it's possible in any way, try to get outside for that lunch break. Mm -hmm. uh, have a good lunch. It'll be the last meal that you have of the day. Okay, so eat whatever you want. Um, don't have to restrict your calories necessarily unless you need, unless you want to, but get outside, get that sunlight, maybe even a little bit of vitamin D. Um, realize that ultraviolet radiation isn't gonna penetrate through clothes, but infrared will. Uh, finish the day, whether you get home at five or seven or eight, you know, it depends. Uh, but there's a good chance that you're not gonna get sunlight before you get home. If you do, great, go out and, and kind of look at the sunset, enjoy the sunset. Give it that imprinting on your circadian rhythm that the sun is setting, you get that beautiful red light. Um, you know, 100, 200 years ago, maybe there was a fire. Yeah. Right? Think about a fire, right? Just think <laughs> about a fire. It's low in intensity, it's low down on the ground, so it's not gonna be hitting those intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, and it's giving off a lot of infrared warmth which is gonna penetrate your clothes and hopefully give you the effect on the mitochondria. Yeah, and there's also another element about fire is that it is really good at bringing community together. Yes. And uh, I just think back to even two nights ago um, when you and Kyle and I were hanging out in the sauna in very dim light, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> After the, it was very dim. It was very <laughs> dim. Um, thankfully for my physique. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't exactly, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't exactly like a fire per se, but it was like a low yeah. level light. Yeah. And we were just in community together, exchanging ideas, exchanging spiritual concepts yeah. and physiological concepts. And I'll tell you, I don't know about you. Well, I do, because you mentioned it. I slept so well that night. And, um, and you know, I think that there is, um, is a part, you know, many of us have been studying different elements of the blue zones, for example. Yeah. And it's very much, you know, uh, akin to how you describe sort of a, the, an ideal day or how you can make a, a day as good as it possibly can be. Yes. Um, and, you know, community is a component of that that yeah. seems to have um, be very correlated with people thriving into their hundreds and, and on. And uh, 
I'm certainly been blessed to be in community with you guys oh, um, over, well. the, over the last uh, few days and just so grateful for your work in general, um, which I find to be actually not just thorough and, rigor and rigorous, but very brave because you have managed to carve out a uh, lane that is a very difficult one to carve out in this day and age, mm -hmm. particularly on the internet. Um, you know, YouTube in particular uh, sort of celebrates and rewards sensationalism yeah. and hyperbole uh, and editorial bias, um, et cetera. And it's just kind of the nature of leveraging human negativity bias for clicks and watch times and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so the... Um, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years is, you know, the, the channels and the media that has really gotten many of the biggest eyeballs are sometimes the one that veers off to the most sensationalized or the most hyperbolized. Right. But you guys have just stayed with the evidence-based science. You've been open-minded. You've addressed all sorts of ideas from all sorts of the across the light spectrum, yeah. if you will. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you've really carved out what I call the middle way, which is, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's moderation, but it's also bringing uh, extremes into coherence, into cooperation. And I think, boy, if anything is needed in our polarized and atomized and lonely culture today it's coherence and cooperation and bringing people uh into community and and getting people to work together um because all of society's greatest projects have been predicated on this ability to cooperate at scale yeah and you guys are are really um our leaders in that respect insofar in that you are getting great scale with your message. Uh, and it's a message based on, on science and on sanity and on reason and on, uh, on humility. Yeah. So well, thank you so much. For thank you, Jeff. Yeah. I can say from Kyle and my, from both of us, um, you have also done a tremendous job here at commune in bringing and being one of the, 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 the catalysts, for bringing uh, people with that like-mindedness together. And I, I just have to say that I have not slept better in the last two days. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I don't have a sauna, but I'd certainly love to get one. And I've been blessed, Kyle and I both actually have been blessed uh, to, uh, to have been in, in the sauna and, and get the benefit. And I'm thinking maybe that's what it is. I need to get one sooner than I think. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I will endorse one for sure. Okay. I, yeah, well, maybe we'll get a deal out of this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Roger, I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Roger Schwelt. Check out Roger's videos on medical science on the MedCram YouTube channel and look out for his commune course titled The Five Keys to Immunity. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation. We really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for the first 15 minutes about sponsors. 
So if you're really looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible day after day, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you.